2: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network, and I have a different role in the network right now. But occasionally, when I see a book that I'm really interested in by somebody I am really interested in, I step back in front of the microphone, and that's the case today. We'll be talking with David N. Gottlieb about his book, Second Slings, The Binding of Isaac and the Formation of Jewish memory I've known David for a number of years he is a host on new books and Jewish studies and we're happy to have him so when I saw that he had published this book I said here is an opportunity for me to talk with one of my favorite people about something I know nothing about <laughs> uh, I can tell you that uh, that David's laughing already the, um, <laughs> I can tell you by way of introduction to my extensive knowledge of the Hebrew Bible and the Binding of Isaac came from uh, Lutheran Sunday School in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> wow. I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was because it's sort of embarrassing, but that uh, we, we learned about it then. But anyway, uh, David, welcome to the show.
0: Marshall, thank you for that very kind introduction and uh, for the chance to talk to you about this. I'm excited.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure. So, David, I know that you've had a very interesting career, but I don't know if the audience does. So, I'd like you to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about what you did before you wrote Second Slings.
0: Right. So um, as I say pretty much right off in in the introduction to the book, um, I I decided on the folly uh, on the midlife. My midlife crisis choice was to go back to school uh, in my (laughs) late 40s. And prior to that, and and even during that, for a good part of my graduate education, um, I was running a nonprofit that I – Uh, co-founded with my business partners to develop affordable housing and provide supportive services to the residents of uh, our housing developments. So I had been doing that for uh, almost 10 years, and I could see uh, that the end of that career was coming down the road, and I had to start thinking about all the things I'd wanted to do and hadn't done. So um, I hired a, a very capable number two, a much more talented developer than I, um, began training him up. And at that point, I went back to school to the University of Chicago Divinity School. They, I still don't know why they let me in, um, <laughs> but uh, I managed to uh, get an MA in divinity and then get into the PhD program in the history of Judaism. Uh, and I received the PhD last year. The whole process took me uh, about 10 years, partly because I was working full time and partly because I'm a really slow learner. So I I kept that affordable housing work up for a long time and I'm still active uh, on the board of Full Circle Communities, the organization I helped start and that I ran for 10 years. And then uh, 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 retirement from that and graduation uh, from the PhD program at the Divinity School happened uh, almost simultaneously. And now I'm enjoying uh, being able to teach and write uh, on a more full-time basis.
2: Well, that's great. Yeah. It's kind of the my career in reverse because i started as a scholar and now i guess i run a business i did yes it's just That's now coming to me that i run a business you i do. you absolutely <laughs> do yeah i never thought of it that way when <laughs> i started it 13 yeah. years ago yeah. but yeah it's essentially what i do and it, believe me it takes a very different skill set i'm not sure i have it
0: <laughs> um i don't know i think the way <laughs> new books is going i i, I want yeah, to a little well. plug i think yeah. you're doing a good job of running a business
2: yeah, well, thank you very much. I think it's going very well too, and yeah. we're very we're very glad to have authors like you on the show because our mission is, of course, to get the word out about what you do, and I think right. we do that effectively. So good. So let me ask a second question, and that is, why the heck did you write this book?
0: So uh, when we were talking before you started the interview, I I only half jokingly said I'm still trying to figure that out, <laughs> but but I uh, during my graduate studies I got interested in the concept of mimesis. I mean, a lot of times when people apply to graduate school, they already know what they want their graduate research um, projects to be. And I really didn't. But early on in my graduate education, I got interested in uh, the idea of mimesis, which was written about um, by such scholars as uh, Hans-Georg Gadamer and Walter Benjamin Uh, and Auerbach, and a whole host of other authors who are interested in what exactly mimesis is and how it functions in art, culture, and society. But it was a short leap from there to thinking about how we learn through imitation. We we take stories in, um, we learn by imitation and appropriation. In other words, we not only imitate things but we transform them through the repetition of them and it was a short step from being interested in that topic to being interested in the topic of cultural memory generally and jewish cultural memory specifically so as i began uh, to explore and research the idea of cultural memory which really had its heyday as an academic infatuation uh toward the end of the 20th century i began to realize that um the foundations of what we would call contemporary Jewish memory really had their origins in how uh, not even only how biblical stories were interpreted, but how the act of repetition and the writing down and the editing of biblical stories came to be. I, I kept following it further and further back in my research until I was sort of gobsmacked all over again by the story of The Binding of Isaac. In the book of genesis this is a famous and terrifying very compact narrative in which as most people know who study the bible uh, abraham receives uh, a directive from god really phrased in the form of a plea but often interpreted as a directive to sacrifice his son Um, and and what happens in the 20 verses around that story um plays a decisive role I came to believe in how not only Jewish culture as a whole approaches the issue of memory, but how important and interlinked interpretation and memory are when Jewish culture has to recover from crisis. All of this, I feel, is almost encapsulated in freeze-dried form um, in the story of the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac, because... Abraham has to interpret his way out of the crisis of the somewhat elliptical command God appears to have given him. And he does this through an amazing combination of uh, obedience and rebellion, haste and procrastination, and honesty and prevarication. All these things happen with huge gaps in the text that the rabbis have to plumb and interpret. And why did they go back to it uh, and go over it uh, so often? Because Abraham, I believe, interprets his way out of crisis. And this is exactly what the rabbis are doing in the centuries after the destruction of the temple in the year 70 of the common era. So Abraham and Isaac and Sarah, all the characters in this story help provide a map for how To use memory and interpretation to recover from crisis so i went from the issue of thinking about mimesis to thinking about how that's related to issues of memory and then i traced interpretations of the story of the binding of isaac to explore how that story teaches jews both to remember and to recover from a cultural crisis
2: Mm -hmm. very well spoken Thank you very much. Sure. <laughs> a terrific job. Thank you. Um, let's do some of the scholarly basics before we proceed. Uh, again, I'm a historian, so yeah. one of the things I'm interested in is the kind of earliest appearance of this particular story, The Binding of Isaac. Um, when, when do we think it first appeared? Oh. And then a related question is, when is the first recorded document that we still have that has it in it? Mm-hmm. Those are so really two different questions, questions. Sure, and
0: yeah. and I'm I'm just going to pepper this whole interview with disclaimers about you know areas of expertise that I don't have, and so in terms of text critical knowledge, here is what I can tell you: that it appears that the story of the binding of Isaac is the product of uh, more than one or two layers of uh, scribal writing, editing, and redaction. It appears to have uh, at least a couple of, uh, insertions of layers of text that happen over centuries. The earliest that, uh, scholars confidently trace it to is, uh, if you adhere at all to the documentary hypothesis and the idea that there are four major redactional and editorial participants in the creation of the Hebrew Bible of the Torah, um, that the elohist the e uh uh scribe is the one who's primarily responsible for the overall structure of this story and that places it about the 8th century before the common era now the mm-hmm. interesting thing one of the other interesting things that that uh, scholarship shows is how uh how widespread the template of the saving of the eldest son from the clutches of sacrificial procedure is spread across uh, cultures in the ancient near east um, and in greece and the story seems to have almost a foundational presence in several cultures around that time but we don't have uh, aside from knowing very roughly about when the story may have been originally composed, we can't really say how far back in culture uh, the story exists. And it's also remarkable that the story is never mentioned again in in Torah. Uh, So it makes this remarkable, shocking appearance in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac disappears for a couple of chapters. Then he appears to according to the rabbis, literally drop out of the sky. Uh, Some rabbinic interpreters uh, feel that his sudden reappearance is indication that he's dropped back out of heaven after being healed of his wounds in the heavenly realm. And that that is why Rebecca, when she lays eyes on him, literally falls off her camel as she approaches. Uh, So the story that would suggest That the story indicates that on some levels Isaac died and was brought back to life in the heavenly realm, and of course, as you know from Lutheran Sunday school, the story of the binding of Isaac is then seen as a clear um, harbinger of the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Oh yeah! Um, So (laughs) that's what Pastor Trost told me. Oh yeah, Yeah, yeah. you will right, (laughs) Pastor Trost. (laughs) uh, So the story is ancient, and the story uh, is ancient, not only in Israelite cultures, but a template of it is, is evident in other cultures as well. And Shalom Spiegel in his landmark work, the last trial, which I discuss at some length in the book talks about these other cultures, including ancient, uh, ancient Arab cultures in which sons were sacrificed and buried under the altars on which they were sacrificed. And indeed, uh, rabbinic interpreters say, uh, that uh, seem seem under the influence of a belief that Isaac was killed and offered up in a whole burnt offering and buried under the altar on Mount Moriah. and then of course, the question becomes, well, how can he be dead and alive at the same time? How can he be sort of the Schrodinger's cat of Judaism? Right. And uh, th- this is the opportunity, this is the gap in the text that the rabbis exploit to explore how. Crisis is evidence of divine care. Rather than being an abandonment of covenant, crisis is an opportunity to renew covenant because it actually shows a way out of predicament. And that's why one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why the story of the Binding of Isaac is so important to the rabbinic interpreters in the first several centuries of the Common Europe.
2: Yeah, it's very important, obviously, in Christianity, too. And, you know, one of the things that is often pointed out in, I don't know, the Sunday school version of this is that, you know, uh, the cliche is God works in mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. And people say that when something really bad happens to them, even though they're acting pretty well. Uh, And that is kind of a mystery, at least from the Christian perspective. And in the case of Abraham, uh, father of nations, he'd been doing pretty well with God. You know, he'd, he'd at said, I remember, you know, he's asked to go and be a stranger in a strange land and so on and so forth. And he gets Sarah and uh, and Sarah, who's barren. Sarah's barren, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then um, and then she has a child at about 100 and whatever years she's old. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, right. So he'd been doing pretty well with God. And so in a certain way, it's not surprising when God said to him, you know, you have to sacrifice your oldest son. You should probably do this.
0: And right yeah right and several. so and so uh, but on the other hand you know this is uh the rabbis identify 10 trials that abraham is put through including um you know being prosecuted and thrown in the fiery furnace and asked to leave and having sarah taken away from him <clears throat> excuse me and so uh th- this is the 10th and ultimate of the trials of abraham And on one level, he does seem to be doing pretty good, but God keeps testing him. And the question comes up, are all these other tests just preparation for this one big test? And actually, who's being tested? In some ways, it is a mutual test, not just God of Abraham, but Abraham of God. If I actually proceed to do this unfathomable thing, will God actually ask me to go through with it? Are they playing a game of chicken? is Abraham saying an ethical God would not command me to do this? uh, And so I'm going to proceed as if I'm going to do it anyway, and place all my bets on the fact that I won't do it? Or is Abraham such a zealot, such a deep believer in God, and in God's goodness, that he's eager to do it? Now, the rabbis point out that a journey that would Uh, at the time, have typically taken eight hours from where Abraham received the command to the top of Mount Moriah, could be traversed in eight hours, but it takes Abraham three days to do it. He chops the wood and saddles the donkeys himself after he receives the command from God. And that's something that a man of his station has many servants at the ready to do. So in other words, Abraham is obeying the command, but he's also taking his sweet time. He appears to be Uh, obeying and rebelling at the same time. And this is critical because that too is a model for Jewish exegesis. One has to be faithful to the text in a certain way, which is being faithful to God, but one also has to be within the parameters of acceptability, interpret creatively, uh, find new meaning and new messages in the text. And that is on another level, what Abraham appears to be doing. But we have to keep remembering, keep reminding ourselves that the story comprises several levels, that multiple redactors appear to have had their hand in it. So we are actually reading the story as it's interpreted over centuries of its transmission, redaction, adaptation, and eventual commitment to writing.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of the central paradoxes of both
0: Judaism and Christianity is
2: that, you know, it's in Cain and Abel too, you know like you, you can do really well and do
0: everything God asks and still things can go bad for you. That's right. And, I uh, mean in terms of the <laughs> why, how, why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible yeah. uh, repeatedly returns to that question and cannot cannot really answer it. And this is the this is why and it is a fundamental question in the midst of crisis, right? Because a crisis is a bad thing that's happened. And yeah. if uh you are a rabbinic sage and you spend uh, your life revolves around the Torah and around covenantal commitment, and and the physical locus of the human divine relationship is destroyed by humanity, then the immediate question is, have we done something wrong? Or And or, if we investigate what has occurred, what will we learn about covenant, commitment, relationship to God, the nature of the divine that we didn't know before? And the binding of Isaac is so useful for that, as I have mentioned, not only because it shows an inscrutable God uh, drawing Abraham on toward a terrible conclusion, but the story has enough gaps in it so that it can be interpreted in numerous ways. And that's why the rabbis expend so much exegetical energy on it when they do, because the urgent question is, why have we arrived at this place? Is covenant to be abandoned? Is the implicit constant question, or are we able to renew it on the basis of a new interpretation? And of course, at the heart of the of the Binding of Isaac story is the act of ritual sacrifice. Um, there's there's plenty of evidence that at the hit, at at the time in history when this might have taken place, some five centuries before its commitment, uh, before its uh, existence probably came to be in writing in about the eighth century before the common era, as I mentioned, that at that time, the sacrifice um, of children was not at all uncommon in the ancient Near East. And uh, a prominent interpretation of this story, uh, which I think personally was beginning to be debunked in scholarship almost a century ago, is that this story is the definitive end of child sacrifice. What God is actually doing, uh, many uh, modern uh, interpreter said is showing Abraham and through Abraham uh, Israelite culture that that child sacrifice is to be practiced no more. There's actually very little evidence for this. In fact, child sacrifice continued well beyond the time when Abraham might have existed and there are more stories like the story of Jephthah's daughter of child sacrifice later on in the Bible. Those examples are are clearly, Negative, but that is a, a process that has been arrived at gradually as the act of sacrifice uh focuses on animals, animals being substitutes for the favored son who was the original object of Israelite sacrifice. It is widely believed, so the substitution that Abraham makes of the ram caught in the thicket for Isaac is what begins and is serves as the basis. For ritual sacrifice of animals, the animals sacrificed in sacrificial rite at the at the temple are all substitutes for, uh, uh scapegoats, if you will, for uh, human beings, for sinful human beings, and for the acts of sin that have to be expiated. So sacrifice. So the rabbis go back and interpret interpret the sacrifice of Isaac as if. The ritual of sacrifice of animals as expiation for sin were already well established according to the rules of the sacrificial cult in Israel, which didn't really happen until centuries later. So the rabbis are engaged in this sophisticated act of what I call retrospective prefiguration. They're sending modern interpretations back as if they already existed in Abraham's day and then bringing them forward into the present as if they'd always existed all along, it's a mm-hmm. it's a sophisticated way of saying um, the imprimatur for our interpretation is embedded in the very basis of the story, and that is how a culture renews itself on the smoking embers of crisis is by saying there's actually an opportunity for renewal here, and that's a crucial aspect of the crisis that we're being put through is a chance for renewal through interpretation. And the interpretation that the rabbis make is that all these sacrificial rites and structures have to be internalized. And they're internalized through halacha, Jewish law, through uh, liturgy, through, through the establishment of prayer rites based on the times and orders of sacrifice. And prayer, study, and acts of devotion— are all internalized models of sacrifice. So instead of abandoning the whole thing, they bring it all inside the individual and inside the community as a way of saying we are being challenged to maintain the basis of covenantal commitment, but in a radically new and individualized way.
2: Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of this sort of thing these use of these analogies or metaphors, you see it a lot in early Christianity or in just Christianity in general. And that is that, you know, you have to die and be reborn in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know This is commonly said, right? Mm-hmm. Die and be reborn. Um, taking on new identities and names when you take vows, that kind of thing. Right. Um, the, the particular, <laughs> the particular interpretation about the end of child, uh, Sacrifice. That one sounds particularly Christian to me because Christians right. are always on about like, well, it gives you this nice progression, right? Yes. Like first they ended child sacrifice, and then they ended all sacrifice. See how it works?
0: <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And of course, you know, uh, Jesus, being the Son of God, is the is the human sacrifice to end all right. human exactly. sacrifices. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's like the sacrifice and all sacrifices. We're done with sacrifices right. now. And right. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. So. Uh, but it's and, it's interesting. It, it, you you bring up a point that's really. Interesting in terms of how the rabbis arrived at a lot of these interpretations, because it would appear uh, that part of the reason the story of the binding of Isaac becomes so important to the rabbis, even though it's never mentioned in Torah again, is that there's a there's an, uh, a, a, an exegetical battle going on with early Christianity, especially in the figure of Origen, the great early Christian yeah. commentator yeah. about who owns, if you will, who owns this story whether the story is a prefiguration of the crucifixion of Jesus or whether, um, you know, whether covenantal commitment between God and Israel is dead. So a lot of the exegetical energy that's put toward the story of the binding of Isaac is, uh, possibly a battle between the rabbinic sages and origin who were engaged in regular sort of exegetical hand-to-hand combat about who owns the story and what the story really means. So I think, yeah. uh, The, the, the Christian, the early Christian views of the story of the binding of Isaac and, uh, and rabbinic views, it mutually influenced each other. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of textual evidence, uh, to suggest and historical evidence to suggest that. And that is part of the reason why the binding of Isaac is, is so prevalent, not only in Jewish thought, but in Christian thought and in Islamic thought, where by the way, over the centuries, um, Islamic scholars settle on uh, the conclusion that it was Ishmael not Isaac who was oh. nearly sacrificed by Abraham.
2: Okay, all right. Yeah, the the, the early the patriarchs of the church that the Christian church were were just kind of crazy about going into the what we now call the Hebrew Bible or the old Testament and finding prefigurations of every imaginable. Kind. Correct. Correct. It was like a parlor. I, I was going to make light of it and say it was like a parlor game for them, but they were really very focused on it. I think they called it typology. Or yes. It's or
0: typological yeah. thinking. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, 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 uh, in, in Jewish thought in Pirkei Avot, it says, um, the acts of the fathers are signs for the children. Yeah. Maase avot siman simane lebanim, meaning uh, you know what what happens to to Abraham is a sign of what's going to happen to all of us. What happens, uh, you know, what happens in the Garden of Eden even is a sign of the constant struggle we have to go through on a daily basis. And don't forget, I mean, the Christian exegetes, the early ones like Paul, were were schooled in by rabbinic sages were in some cases rabbinic sages themselves yeah so that they're the typological thinking is something that's deeply shared and sometimes intertwined in these traditions yeah but sort of bad as history goes (laughs) Uh, So that's really interesting and i do talk about that in the book that that you know uh uh who wrote uh zahor jewish history and jewish memory thought Why didn't Jews write any history? Why were they so bad at history? Why didn't we do history until the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment? And the question really is, well, how was history going to be useful to to Jewish culture? The act of remembering was not simply the way our computers remember, right? Which is a literal transcription of of the order of keystrokes, the words said, and so on. Um, memory is an act of em- taking in and embodying what you have learned, which is often related to, but rarely identical with, exactly what happened. And and uh, uh, Yerushalmi is puzzled by the rabbi saying, what happened? Happened. That is a saying that they repeatedly uh, return to, which he takes to mean, you know, why are you obsessing over whether B happened after or before A? It really doesn't matter. Suggesting that what the rabbis are really saying is how we interpret, how we embody, how we change our our exegetical strategy and our spiritual lives after this event, that's what matters, not what literally happened, not the sequence of events. Other interpreters think that when the rabbis say what happened happened, they're really just saying, you can't do anything about it now. What are you going to do now? That's yeah, the real right. question. But, <laughs> yeah. but history, as as you and I, Marshall, as you and I know it, as you being a student of history, um, that was not something that was uh, important to or even present in a large in, – in a, in a major way to the rabbinic sages of the early centuries of the common era. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. And it's important too because the Binding of Isaac story um, is so remarkable but is – but is utterly unverifiable as history as you and I know it. I don't know about you,
2: but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, right. But you can see easily how this sort of purpose of the exegesis or scholarly activity between these rabbinic scholars and these Christian fathers just diverges completely. Because essentially what the early Christians are doing is writing apologetics and saying, look, if you interpret what's in the Hebrew Bible correctly, you'll see that Christ is the Messiah. I mean, right. <laughs> there's just an argument there. Exactly. It's like, look, if you look at history, the chronology, and read the text right, you'll see that they're all talking about the appearance of this guy. Right. And this guy is God. Right. And so they have, they're have they sort of grinding a different axe. Definitely. Than, than, yeah, whereas these scholars are saying, okay, what happened, happened. These are the texts we have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what we have to work with. It's kind of empiricists in that way. Very much <laughs> so. Like, I mean, I think this that's this is really... what we have, yeah. man. Nothing else. Yeah, This yeah. is what yeah. we got to go, go on.
0: You know? And that's what,
2: that's what I'm very sympathetic. That's what Lutheran Luther said too. He's like,
0: this is what we have. We mm-hmm. don't have anything else. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Just this. <laughs> but in, but the way the rabbis thought about these foundational stories, and again, I mostly restrict my focus, at least in this book, to to the Binding of Isaac is, this is all we got, but it has so many facets that we haven't even begun to plumb its significance. Part of the reason being that as time passes, new facets of its meaning will be revealed to us. If we truly uh, understand the nature of Torah, they seem to be saying, it is a living document, meaning that it is constantly even though it is fixed and immutable, it's constantly changing because our relation to it in time and space is changing. And new interpretations, new avenues of understanding will arise. And already by the time they're writing, that's that's profoundly true of the story of the Binding of Isaac. Of course, the other the other reason it's so memorable is that a lot happens in only, depending on how you count the verses, twenty <coughs> excuse me, twenty to twenty two verses. Uh, so. All these stories were oral stories to begin with. This one was easy to remember and easy to transmit because it happened quickly. So, within this compact uh, narrative, you have a model for how to respond when everything that you love the most that has been brought to you under the umbrella of covenantal commitment seems to be being taken away. On the basis of that very – the same God who brought Abraham wealth, riches, uh, uh, land, uh, deep relationship with the creator of the universe is going to – and said numerous times that his descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore – is going to take away the only avenue to that covenantal commitment. How can that be a good thing? How can a God of justice and mercy do these things? Well – We have to, it is incumbent upon us, the rabbis are saying, and modeling, to constantly reapproach that question and ask it under new circumstances and with the new information that occurs through the passage of time.
2: Yeah, I want to get to how they answered it in a second, but this, in the Christian tradition, at least in the Catholic tradition, not so much in the Lutheran tradition, because the Lutherans are all very big, you know sola scriptura and kind of maniacs about this stuff, Mm -hmm. but it's called continuous or continuing revelation. Mm -hmm. It's like, more will be revealed all the time. You're going to, you have the same stuff, but you're going to see different things in it and that's just fine. That's the way God intended it. That's right. Again, Lutherans, not so much. (laughs) 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 But but, but yeah, for for most Christians, it's continuing revelation and, you know, like things can change. Sure, it says this in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Yeah, but things are different now and God would want us to interpret it in this way now rather than the other way. Mm -hmm. Mm You know, that's a sort of sensible, you know, living document kind of approach to, to, to the way we should understand these sacred texts. Right. Um, right. So I do, I do want to get to that. What did they say about this uh, really paradoxical situation? Whereas the God that created you and loved you and has promised you prosperity and whom you have followed and done everything you are asked to do then says, kill your son. Yeah. So, I mean, it's,
0: <laughs> that is the, that's the, you know, that's, that's the thousand dollar question. question. Yeah. And it's, it's uh like so many questions in in uh, canonical text, um, there are a series of answers to that question, and none is definitive, which is what gives the story um, its ongoing energy. Uh, and the answers are numerous and vary widely. Um, uh, some rabbis say that the grammatical structure of God's command to Abraham, uh uh take your son, your favored one whom you love, and take him up for a burnt offering, according both to some rabbinic commentators and some later medieval interpretators, um, is something that Abraham gets wildly wrong. That while the command can mean take him up for an Olah offering, a specific kind of whole burnt offering, whose Greek, by the way, is the Greek word for it is holocaustos, mm-hmm. um, that Abraham misinterprets the command. When, when the question is, w- when it says in the first verse of the story, um, God tested Abraham, the question is, well, what's the test? And how can and why should an omniscient God need to test somebody? Um, answers are known. Uh, if everything is foreseen, what is the nature of a test on the on the basis of a divine? But really, one level on which Abraham is could be being tested is in how he interprets the command. And uh, uh, Ibn Ezra and others, including the rabbis quoted in the uh, who who dialogue in Genesis Rabbah, the the book of midrash um, in which this text is explored at great length, think it's possible some interlocutors think it's possible that Abraham misunderstands the command and that the nature of the test is partly in how Abraham will interpret the command. Hmm, Will he make the most extreme possible interpretation of the command and hew to that interpretation? That That most extreme interpretation being, of course, go up and slaughter your son who was born to you in your old age after the promise i made to you would god right, actual yeah right <laughs> yeah. or did the command could the command have been taken to mean take him up and perform an olah offering now yeah. again you have to uh, even already in the in the biblical text the technical term for a whole burnt offering is being used suggesting that it is a normal sacrificial procedure um, and one that might have been done on animals, one that certainly, uh, in certain cultures at that in that time and place, was done on on children, on a, especially on uh, the on the eldest son. And I talk in some length about how issues of yeah. of dedicating the firstborn to God, how that gets reinterpreted over time. But the rabbis. Um, who make the interpretations that I focused on most in, in my book, uh, believe that, uh, explore the idea that Abraham is being tested on interpretation, or he is simply, um, going ahead, hoping that new interpretations of the commandment will be revealed to him as he goes. But, uh, it's interesting to note that after this event although god blesses abraham there is no further in the in the torah there's no further direct communication between abraham and god mm-hmm. in other words god in in the rabbinic view on one level seems to be saying the ultimate Test the final test, and the final communication between us is going to be: How do you interpret this command? Are you willing to kill everything for my sake, or will you find an avenue for interpretive genius that will make the text truly your own? And of course, there's a, a famous incident in the Talmud in which, uh, in which rabbinic interlocutors get into a dispute over the nature of whether a specific oven is kosher or not. One of the one of the uh, one of the partners in this debate asks for signs from god that his view is the right view this parable is called the oven of achnai and god keeps um answering this person's if if my if my view is right let the stream flow backwards the stream flows backwards if my view is right let this wall collapse and the wall leans suddenly that they're standing next to you. but he loses the debate the debate in this story, when uh, his opponent says, quoting Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, it is not in the heavens, meaning God no longer, God has given us text, law, and covenant. It, th- now, all interpretations are incumbent on us. It is not in the heavens. We no longer look to God for signs and judgments. The law was given to us, Sacred text was given to us, and the arts of interpretation were given to us so that we can find the answers to these questions. The end of that story, that famous story, being that God laughs and says, My children have defeated me. In other words, God has created a human realm where the humans take over completely, and that God is no longer looked to for answers that everything is latent in the text and that interpretation can be made as a way to keep covenantal commitment alive, that it's alive through text. So the ultimate test of Abraham to go back to your question, in one sense, the ultimate test of Abraham is how you going to interpret this pal. What are you going to do? And God sees possibly goes one interpretation, one that I favor emotionally. Um, is that seeing how extreme Abraham's interpretations can be, God realizes, uh, uh, God understands that the process of removal from the equation of human-divine relationship and giving over interpretation to human beings is the the ultimate step that human beings have been prepared for, you know. God is ultimately and intimately present, completely present to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the whole book of Genesis is about the increasing distance of God from from the foundational generations that give birth to Israelite culture. And this culminates, in a sense, before we get into the book of Exodus, in this event in which God tests Abraham's ability to interpret this story. Uh, Abraham makes a fairly extreme interpretation. God backs away and puts interpretive autonomy, fully in the hands of human beings. And part of what they do as a result of that is to, is to subjectivize and internalize uh, rights of sacrifice. First, by ordaining substitutes for human sacrifice, and after the destruction of the temple, by completely inter- internalizing all of the sacrificial system itself in prayer, study, and acts of Uh, devotional kindness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this
2: is very interesting because it's another one of these places where, again, the Lutheran upbringing in me, I almost have trouble grasping when I read the Old Testament that that Abraham like talks to God. That people talk to God, Intim- intimate with God. Like, they don't right. even they don't even like what God does. No, he's, and they'll yeah. tell God they don't like God. Right. See, from the Christian perspective, that just doesn't happen because God doesn't appear to people. Right. <laughs> so, right, right, So there's no opportunity to say to God, "I don't like what you're doing. Please don't do that." And here's some reasons. Like he, like Abraham, does this.
0: Yes, and yes. <laughs> and <laughs> part of part of what's uh, James Kugel, uh, a great. Um, now retired scholar in one one of his last books called The Great Shift, talks about how the increasing distance from God is concomitant concomitant and sort of concurrent with the emergence of uh, the individual as the primary locus of experience and meaning in in what would become modernity. In other words, that the full emergence of the ethical and moral um, standing of the individual is only possible in a way, becomes possible, when God removes God's self from the daily functionings and workings of individuals and their relationship with the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is, uh, it, it seems that in the early books of the Bible, people can take God's presence almost for granted. Uh, not, yeah, obviously, God's not everybody, way, yeah. but the people yeah. with whom God is in contact um, understand God to be in many senses, a multivalent and omnipresent, present in many forms and present constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's 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 right, and it's profoundly different than.
2: What Pastor Trost taught me. (laughs) I mean, yes. I mean, there's God's presence. You know, God is everywhere, but he doesn't really say a lot. And, you know, he's got these things you're supposed to read and these things you're supposed to do. And you do those things and you hope for the best. And that's pretty much it. You get the kingdom of heaven when you're done. It's the whole
0: question of imminence versus transcendence, right? And part of what we see in the story is the process is the sort of uh, uh, interesting almost dialectical relationship between imminence and transcendence. It's not only one or the other, it's not moving only in one or direction yeah. or the other, but they're all mixed up together.
2: Yeah. I, I want to come back to one thing that I did uh, in reading um, the story again, if I, if I remember this correctly. And this is, <laughs> and it even struck me as ambiguous when I read it. So he he says to the guy who's holding the ass, you wait here. I'm going to go up with Isaac, but we'll be back. Yep. Yep. Yep.
0: <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> How do we interpret that? So, um, so one thing that troubles rabbinic commentators is is Abraham lying? Right? Is Abraham yeah. saying, we will return to you? Is what is going on there? I mean, this is not the royal we. They don't, they don't, they don't no. do that in ancient Israel. Is he saying Isaac and I will be back because he actually believes that they will be? Or is he saying will be back so that they don't witness what he is about to do. Um, And the, and the third possibility is Abraham simply doesn't know that this, that this uh, theological and ritual game of chicken is almost over. And nobody knows exactly how it's going to end. And the belief uh, of the rabbis, the rabbis seem to come down on the side of, of, Abraham truly believing that whether or not they come down the mountain together, that both of them will come out of this alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea being that all of existence, including Abraham's and Isaac's being in God's hands, that in some way, shape or form, uh, both will return, but they do explore the troubling possibility um, that Abraham's, just doesn't want any witnesses, or uh, the possibility that Abraham is going to go up there and find some way to get out of it, which is in fact what happens.
2: Yeah, um, on the surface of go- the story. Yes, and he he. And if I recall correctly, an angel appears. We would call it an angel. I don't know what it's called in the text. Right
0: in the text, it's a it's an angel. I mean, the word malach is both angel and messenger. In this case, it's a divine, a divine messenger, uh, and these interventions, especially the second, uh, and there are two angelic interventions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, So, so the first one, uh, is a frantic double call to Abraham. Very unusual in the Bible for somebody when somebody's name is shouted out twice, that means there's a situation of extreme urgency. Uh, and, uh, Abraham stops what he's doing, sees the ram, by the way, nowhere in the text does it say God provided the ram for Abraham to yeah. use as a substitute for Isaac. <laughs> that is the archetypal act of substitution, of interpretive substitution around which all of cultural memory is wound. That's the that's yeah. the assertion I make in the book. Um right. after that, there is a there is a second intervention that is much more florid in language, seems to be stylistically totally different. And there's argument amongst uh uh Text-critical scholars uh, about whether that constitutes a second, later sort of polemical insertion into the text to show that Abraham's substitution of the ram for Isaac is the basis of covenantal renewal—that this tenth and ultimate test of Abraham and his ingenious act of substitution is what is what definitively will establish. The numerousness of his descendants, his ability to seize the gates of his foes, um, and that um, you know those who bless him will bless him, and those who curse him, will, those who bless him will be blessed, and those who curse him will be cursed. Whatever it is that Abraham did up there, and whatever it is that he didn't do, the step that he took to substitute the ram for Isaac is the the insertion of interpretive ingenuity into crisis. And that's what's going to carry covenant forward. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, I, I see. So let me uh take a step back because our, our time is running out. Mm-hmm. And already? Um I wonder, it's incredible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, we we could go on for a long time. The I, I do wonder what um modern all the Jews I know are either cultural Jews or reformed Jews, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I do know some Orthodox Jews, but what, what is a modern reformed Jewish gloss on this? Story is. He, are you? We might not feel comfortable ask, answering that, and there may be no answer. Well,
0: I, like- I, I. mean, I think um, uh, as somebody who was sort of raised nominally in the Reform tradition and has spent more time in my adult life uh, in the in the conservative tradition, um, I can say that the people, both the lay people and the sort of rabbinic interpreters I know, um, view this story, uh, especially if I can take this liberty and reform Judaism through an ethical lens that there is, uh, that one of the critical components of this story is, um, the idea that in order to deal with your own innate, uh, relationship with God and the world, and your own sinfulness, whatever that may be and mean to you, uh, acts of violence don't solve it. In other words, that this is a, in, in the Reformed tradition, this is a primarily ethical story. I see. And I said earlier in our discussion that the view of this story as the definitive end of child sacrifice has kind of been frowned upon by later scholarship. My impression, however, my impression, and I don't I don't have official imprimatur yeah, sure, to say this. No, I, I in the reform understand. tradition, that's still kind of prominently the view that uh, that Abraham is brought up to the edge of this experience, so that he can be stopped. In other words, it's very it's very different to say "don't kill" and then say "I'm going to take you right up to the edge of feeling like you have no choice but to kill," and then provide you with an alternative so that you. Yeah in viscerally take into your body the notion of how terrifying the responsibility is of the killing of the innocent that you must never ever ever do it, so it is an ethical prescription in more um in more traditional through more traditional lenses the story has um has an altogether different meaning which is on one level, and again, I'm kind of oversimplifying because I know we're running short, but on one level is no, the inscrutability of the human divine relationship, that we are, in a way, like Isaac, thrown into a world in which we are heavily dependent on, um, on our relationship to the divine, which acts in ways we cannot fully understand. But in more traditional interpretations, including in some rabbinic interpretations that I deal with in the book, uh, Isaac is a willing participant. That after, uh, after Isaac says, Father, here are the fire and the wood, but where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will see to the sacrifice, my son, that it is at that moment that Isaac understands that he is to be the sacrifice and that he opens his heart to his necessary role in Abraham's love for God that he willingly does it and this um, is is the precedent for the value placed in uh, in Judaism on martyrdom On the act of Kiddush Hashem, of the sanctification of the divine name, of going to the last full measure of devotion, of being able and willing to give up your very life for God. In more traditional Jewish views, that is a step that we have to take. We, thinking of ourselves in this story, not only place ourselves in Abraham's position, but also in Isaac's position. And in feminist interpretations, I should add, it's really important to put ourselves in Sarah's position. The story ends, the next section of the Torah begins with Sarah's death, and rabbinic interpreters say she hears about what happened, what Abraham did without telling her, and she drops dead. Uh, And the the violent total exclusion of, of the feminine from influence on this story uh, is something that the rabbis and later interpreters pay deep attention to. And indeed, Isaac, when he returns to the story, takes his wife, Rebecca, into his mother's tent, which uh, which is seen as a very important act of re-embracing of the feminine within the masculine, of moving away from Abraham's violent and zealous devotion. But to just re- sort of recapitulate my answer to your original question, uh, I would say that in more liberal Jewish traditions, this is a challenge to be ethically whole and to strenuously resist violence of any kind. And in more in more uh, traditional and more conservative um, rubrics, the story is one of obeying and loving God to the last full measure of devotion. Mm-hmm. mm
2: mm-hmm. I, I, I guess it's time for me to editorialize a little bit. <laughs> you have that liberty for that yeah. network. Yeah, yeah, I can. I can do that. It seems to me what's really beautiful about the story is that we're kind of all Abraham and Isaac in a way, because yes. we will all be asked to do things that we don't want to yes. do and that we know that we have to do. Yes. There's just no I tell my kids this all day long. Yeah, right. <laughs> Shovel the lock. Right. right. I don't want to. You right. have to. Sorry. Right. You must sacrifice. So the lock is shoveled. That's right. And right. you know, and, and we're all Isaac too, because essentially we're going to die and it's going to do You know, we're going to get it and um, we're going to have to, we're going to have to serve something higher such than a, ourselves. Such a good
0: point. Not only are we There's eventually going to die, but this. we're, yeah. we're born into a world whose rules we learn on the fly. And sometimes yeah, oh those things turn on us. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Like we're just, Well, that's just it. anybody who's lived any certain amount of life knows that. It doesn't matter. I mean, sure, it's it's statistically speaking, I guess I would say, to put on my economist cap, yes, if you do the right things, you're probably going to get a pretty good result in our world. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you don't. Yeah. Sometimes you just get cancer and croak. Right. I mean, I hate to say it, but that will just happen. You better prepare yourself for it. Right. Because it will just happen. So this is on that metaphorical and psychological level the accidental quality of these of all these things i mean obviously in this case of the story is that they're embodied in god that is the purpose of them yeah. but this will happen to you Absolutely. there's no question about it you know yeah. and i i know that it's it's almost painful for me to watch my kids. And I know it's funny because as a parent, I'm always like, well, if I just tell my kids all the mistakes I made, they won't make them. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. You know, it's funny. <laughs> no, they make them all. <laughs> Isaac Isaac
0: makes so many mistakes, but he makes very it's interesting that he his pattern, the pattern of Isaac's life after the Akedah, after this narrative, he 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 lives where his father lives. He redigs the wells his father dug. He Uh, sort of gets Rebecca in trouble with Abimelech, a neighboring king, the same way Abraham got Sarah in trouble with Abimelech by pass, trying to pass her off as his sister instead of his wife. Um, And uh, so he, so his, his life patterns follow Abraham's very closely, but he makes uh, very different mistakes, I would say. Um, And, and one of the lessons there is that we we pat, we are, are the patterns for our lives are set in ways that we have no control over uh, before we're born. But the story of Abraham and Isaac suggests that this, you know, shows the deep and powerful ways in which that continues to be true after we're alive. We tell ourselves stories about how much agency we have, but we have to constantly interrogate yeah. and question. The extent, uh, the extent to which that is true. And I, I wrote, uh, I've done a little bit of writing about how it was interesting for me to be an older student at university and constantly be mistaken for an administrator or professor because that's what I looked like. Um, and to feel both like Abraham and Isaac at the same time, looking like an Abraham in the institutional academic hierarchy, but feeling <laughs> like an Isaac, putting myself at the mercy right. of elders yeah. who could end my career with a flash of their intellectual blade, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, they loved having you because all professors love adult students. Right. Right. And I,
0: <laughs> I loved being an adult student, as difficult as it was. Yeah, all uh, all professors love that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think also another thing I guess I would editorialize a little bit about is the is the aspect of faith in the covenant or faith in the promise. Because essentially the story says uh, from, at least from Abraham's point of view, it's like a promise has been made to me and I really believe that promise. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do whatever this guy says Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it may not work out for me or for Isaac, but it's going to work out for everybody else.
0: Right. It's it's a really really interesting point. And this is one area where um, Judaism and Christianity really philosophically diverge. I mean, the, the, The word emunah, which in Hebrew, which is often translated as faith, really, really has more of a meaning of steadfastness, not belief, but faithfulness. Like if this is the hand I have been dealt, this is the hand I will be playing come what may. Mm -hmm. Um, So that Abraham wound already into this profound relationship with God in which mutual promises have been made has been asked to do something, and in the rubric of that relationship, that's what must be done. It's not even primarily about what's being promised or what may happen on the other side. It's much more unquestioning, which is part of the reason why there's so little dialogue, and what dialogue there is is kind of fraught, because Abraham knows he is bound, if you'll pardon the expression, bound into a situation in which um, the terrible and the commanded live at the same time. And it is partly as a result of Abraham's acts that we are able to see and argue for the increased ethical autonomy of the individual. But in the time and place and relationship in which Abraham finds himself, emunah, faith, really just means faithfulness. This is the deal. This is what's incumbent upon me. Right. And I'm sure
2: the rabbinic commentators didn't miss this. Who's the trustworthy character in this story? Right. It's Abraham, not God. Right. (laughs) Right, right. He's the one who says what he means and means what he says. It's very Whereas God is like playing this weird game,
0: <laughs> right? Right. Uh, there's, you know, in, in lots of rabbinic texts, there are there are flashes of anger toward the divine, not only for what happens, but for, um, but for, uh, I guess what I would call sort of divine inscrutability. There's, yeah. there's, but. But that is – that inscrutability is what gives the texts its, its polysemy, its multifacetedness, and what yeah. requires our continued delving into it to find new meanings uh, cu- uh, required by new circumstances.
2: Well, right. And it mirrors actual lived life perfectly right? because you just don't know when you're going to get hit by a bus. Correct. You just don't Correct. know. And <laughs> you know, it's like the Buddhists are very good about this. You're really always at risk. That's right. Like every moment. That's right. And, you know, <laughs> you may not think you are, it, but yeah.
0: And, and <laughs> they're you know, Judaism is broadly speaking is, is not of the everything happens for a reason school. Yeah. Things yeah. Right. just happen. Um, and then, retrospectively, sense must be made of them.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, once you commit yourself to everything happens for a reason, uh, you're going to get a lot of headaches. Yeah. It's essentially <laughs> – you're going to turn into John Calvin. Right. Who had to write, I right. don't know. Have you ever read yeah. the Institute of the Christian Reli- Oh, my yeah. God, that thing. Yeah. <laughs> that guy was tortured. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's terrifying, but it, <laughs> yeah. but it also
0: gives – you know, it also uh, – Calvin gives enormous energy to – you know, to industry and enterprise, um, and self development of the select few. The idea being that, uh, you know, early sociologists talk about this, um, the idea that if one was among the chosen, that one had enormous details, um, resources at one's disposal. So, uh, Calvin is tortured And part well, I'm not really a Calvin expert, but part of what I want to reflect on about what you said is that uh, the whole notion of how uh, of interpreting what God can possibly mean and what that means for us here on Earth is given a particularly interesting um, interpretation by Calvin uh, that, in some ways, you can find a relation to. Uh, the interpretation that is given to God's command to Abraham, which is, I have been chosen for something. I must pursue that to the last measure of devotion.
2: Well, I have been chosen to have this fascinating conversation with you, and I am very grateful to God or whomever uh, that I was able to do it. <laughs> Let me say that. The feeling is mutual. I don't know. I don't know who facilitated this, and I'm sure there are many people. The Buddhists are good on this, too. You know, you think you actually do things, but it's actually you and the universe. That's right. Doing that's things right. together. That's right. <laughs> and you don't get to do anything alone. Sorry. No. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, true. Yeah. So – let me, first of all, thank you very much for writing the book, and thank you for a fascinating
0: conversation. Marshall, it was really fun. Thank you for thank Absolutely you for having great. this conversation.
2: And we've been talking to David N. Gottlieb about his book, Second Slayings, The Binding of Isaac and the Formation of Jewish Memory. I encourage you to read it. And this is, let me just tell you that this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I hope that you tune in. Actually, tune in is the wrong metaphor. We need a new metaphor for podcasts. I don't know what it is. Download again or
0: something. All right. Take take care. Thank you, Marshall. Bye-bye.